the material is just thin in my judgment. And so uh, given how hard ancient history is in general, uh, I think that there are skeptical scenarios that work if you are a skeptic. I'm not a skeptic, but I'm trying to be fair-minded and, and objective. Uh, I also happen to think, as I told you, I'm a Christian. I'm happy to say Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, but I don't think I can persuade a totally open-minded person, uh, open-minded person on the basis of, basis of history alone. That just uh, isn't the way, way it works. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Dale Allison. And I know it's a little weird in terms of release schedule, but thank you so much for uh, for joining and listening. Um, this is, again, part two of my conversation about resurrection specifically. And uh, I was very grateful to have Dr. Allison on uh, to talk about his work uh, on that very subject and wanted to get both parts out before Easter. And so here you are um, with part two. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, uh, pause this one, go back to last week, listen to the first part, and then come back and listen to this part. If you've already heard it, then you're in the right place. Uh, so uh, other than that, uh, the usual stuff, if you've been listening for a while, you know, go to the website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. Everything you can possibly imagine related to the podcast is on there. Uh, all sorts of new Patreon, um, uh, what do they call them? Uh, packages, I guess. I don't know are on the website, including uh, swag with international shipping, which is not something that we were able to offer before. So now we have some international options on there. So if you've always wanted something with our big logo on it, uh, you can have it. And then um, other than that, the blog is on there. I've been writing a lot more lately. Um, In fact, early uh, unedited uh, blog posts and unedited versions of these episodes in their entirety uh, go up on the Patreon first. So, if you want to check that out, uh, plenty of content coming. And uh, yeah, anyway, appreciate your support and uh, thank you for listening. Without further ado, here's part two in the final episode with Dr. Dale freaking Allison. Yeah, I find that to be really interesting. And from a historical standpoint, when I'm trying to look at sources and and get as many primary sources, folks that were as close to Jesus as possible, who may have been firsthand witnesses, then it sort of throws into doubt if we don't know who wrote them. And if it maybe wasn't, you know, the the author it's attributed to, um, aka a disciple who was present at the time, then it makes you wonder, well, was this something that was written by a school of followers um, who weren't, who didn't? have a firsthand account and we're just kind of writing down what they had heard, you know, so it, it kind of starts to sort of strain the resources that we do have. Yeah. And we also, so, so if you have a, a court, the judge wants the witnesses to be independent 
And the judge means by that, if there were witnesses at the scene of the crime, the judge wants it so that they haven't talked to each other since that moment, right? They went their separate ways, and, you know, you don't want people uh, to be contaminated. But the disciples are talking to each other from the beginning, I'm sure. Whenever anything weird happened, they must have said, what the heck was that? Did you see that? What does it mean? How do we interpret it? That must be going on from the, from the beginning. But beyond that, the literary question is uh, not now, for me, what it used to be. So I used to think the Gospel of John is independent of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I no longer think that. I actually think that the Gospel of John shows knowledge of Luke. I think it shows knowledge of Matthew, probably of Mark. Now, it still has independent traditions, but I, I, it's not an independent voice in my mind anymore, right? And if you look, for example, at Luke and Mark, uh, whoever the author of Luke is, he seems to be using Mark. And this is interesting. If you were to accept the traditional conservative view that Mark wrote Mark and Luke wrote Luke, they both know Paul and they both know each other because they're mentioned together in a couple of places in the New Testament. So even if you accept that these are the people you know, that tradition says they are, they must be talking to each other. So they're not separate, uh, independent witnesses. So I don't know, I don't know that in any case we have independent witnesses to to anything, at least in the modern sense that you want for a, a trial with two people who heard Jesus utter a sentence and then they went their separate ways, never talked to each other, and what they reported got written up in two different literary texts. Uh, I don't know that we have that at any point, which is another problem, right? Yeah. And one of the other things I'd be interested to know, too, is one of the other things that that I would look at um, would be, you know, because the further along we go, more scholars seem to think that, look, a lot of our old uh, stories were were more metaphor than historical fact, and uh, oftentimes borrowed from older traditions. You know, uh, baby Moses and the basket of reeds. You know, mm-hmm. kind of borrowed from earlier uh, traditions, and, and and so on. So, is there any evidence to suggest that there were other uh, resurrected messiahs? Uh, you know, in other within other cultures. Well. <laughs> So if if you're asking the question, are there Greek and Roman stories in which people people's bodies go missing, right? Mm-hmm. Then yes, Romulus, for example, or uh, Hercules, or stories also in which these people reappear after they die. Yes, there are uh, such stories, um, and. I think if you take the Greco-Roman stories and put them all together, they're probably the best argument against there being uh, historically an empty tomb. Uh, That seems to me to be uh, obvious. On the other hand, we also know, (laughs) because we know a lot about, or we know some things about tomb robbery in the ancient world, we actually do know that some tombs were emptied, and some bodies were gone, and it was something that, that happened, right? So just because you have legends about something doesn't mean everything is a legend. And the other thing is that uh, this gets really, really complicated, at least for somebody like me, 
So if you look at the transfiguration of Jesus, we'll move from resurrection to transfiguration for just a second. So this looks to me like it echoes the story of Moses. Moses is the guy on the Old Testament who goes up on a mountain. And when he's there, he glows. And there's a cloud that comes down. And God's voice comes from the cloud. And this happens after six days, as it does in in Mark uh, 9. And Moses himself appears in in the story, right? So you can look at any number of things here, and you can say, as some scholars have, well, Christians just made this up because they wanted Jesus to be at least as great as Moses or greater than Moses. So he has to do the miracles like Moses or at least some some of them. But here's where it becomes difficult for me. And this is actually where I lose all my audience. Okay, almost all my audience. People don't like this on the right or left. But as an historian, I actually think that there are that the evidence for people seeing glowing people is rather robust. I think it's pretty good. So uh, I actually know two people, two people. How many people in world history do I know? Uh, Not that many. The the percentage of people who have lived that I know, it's really, really tiny, right? Two of them have told me that uh, they saw uh, somebody glow. One was a Sufi master and one was a Tibetan Buddhist master. Well, one of these individuals is my own son, and he saw this with three other people who all got together afterwards and said, did you see that? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so what do I do with this? All right, I I just say, okay, I think this happens. And by the way, Roman Catholic canonization records are full of this, full of people swearing they saw um, Teresa of Avila and dozens of others glowing. So I look at the Gospels and I say, well, you know, if you want to say that this is a made-up event or a legend uh, on the basis of Moses, I can't disprove that. On the other hand, I have the weird, weird view that people sometimes have visions of religious figures glowing, whatever the explanation may be. And so I think it's possible, in theory, that a disciple or even some disciples had a vision of Jesus. And I think if they had had a vision of him glowing, they would have thought, oh, this is like Moses. And they would have written up the story with echoes of the story of Moses in it, right? The problem is that uh, there are also just legends of glowing people. There are legends of glowing people, stories that nobody takes seriously. So we know they can be legends. Uh, this, This issue of legend... Uh, and history is really difficult. Or again, just take one other quick example. I think Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. But I think there is some theological overlay here. I think the Christians have probably added the voice from heaven, right? And the declaration that this is my beloved son. And I think Matthew has added a conversation between Jesus and John, where John says, hey, you know, it ought to be the other way around, right? And Jesus says, no, it's okay. Go ahead. So I I think there's an historical event there, but I think it has been overlaid. And I think that is the case myself with the the story of the empty tomb and much that we find in the gospel. So I think that uh, some stories are purely legendary. I, I don't believe in the guards at the tomb, for example. 
I don't think the dead got up in Matthew 27 uh, when Jesus died. There was an earthquake and the tombs were emptied and, and they went into Jerusalem. I don't think that literally happened. Uh, nonetheless, I still think there was probably, not certainly, but probably uh, a story of Jesus's tomb being empty that circulated really early on. And uh, I would attribute it to uh, the original story to women. Uh, I think historically some women went up to Jerusalem from Galilee with Jesus. And I think some of them probably witnessed his crucifixion, which was a public event. It's supposed, that's what you do when you have uh, malefactors, when you have um, people who break the law. You want to show in public, don't do this because you'll end up like this person. So crucifixions are at crossroads. They're public places. So some of Jesus's followers, I'm sure, were there to, to see it, as the Gospels actually say. And then if there were some people who were there, they probably would have followed the body wherever it went. And it's also natural for people uh, to go to graves or to tombs, especially soon after a death. It's just what everybody does in every society that I that I know of. So I just think if a if a group of women actually went up with Jesus to Jerusalem and uh, watched him uh, die, that the other things are actually sort of expected. Of course, they would have some idea where he was buried, and they would go back uh, later for some reason. Just to, whether they wanted to add to the burial, uh, uh, maybe not. Maybe they just went to, to mourn like we all uh, do at, at graves, right? So uh, I think it's historical. But uh, again, I, I think the, the uh, speech of the angel has to be Christian overlay. I think the guards in Matthew are overlay. I think uh, the Gospel of John adding the beloved disciple uh, to the scene and, and so on. So uh, the way I like to put it is I think, I think, there's a gist memory here that is the basic point is there. Uh, Jesus was buried, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He wasn't left on the cross, and he wasn't uh, thrown in a pile. And then uh, early on, there's a story of his tomb being empty. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think... Um we see this even with more modern history where, you know, as they say that the quote goes, you know, the, the, uh, the victors, you know, write the, write the history, you know, so it's always uh -huh. sort of, sort of tainted in some way, you know, or, or, um, you know, kind of written in a more glorious way than perhaps it actually happened. Um, one of the, one of the interesting things too is, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about this is, um, typically when, cause there are other, uh, prophets and Messiah figures of the time who were, who had followers and were, and were killed. And that, that typically was kind of the end of it. Um, you know, they would kind of disperse, uh, you know, and, and so on. So what, what was different about this situation? Because there, there is a moment in scripture where you see that, you know, two of the disciples I, I, uh, were, were heading away from uh, the city and heading to uh, Emmaus and, and, seem to think that, well, it's, that's done, <laughs> you know, yeah. so, but something, something changed their minds, right? So uh, what, what was it uh, that, that kept this movement of Christianity going? So here is my own take on this. I think there are three main ingredients to uh, the Easter faith. 
So first of all, I think Luke 19 is correct when it says that the disciples went up to Jerusalem expecting the kingdom of God to appear immediately or soon. Uh, my own view is that Jesus had a uh, near expectation, was hoping that things would wrap up sooner than later, and at points was probably hoping that things were were very near, right? So I think the disciples live with that expectation. And if you're uh, one of Jesus's disciples, you're going to think, like the Pharisees did, that when the end comes, or when the Messiah comes, or when the kingdom comes, uh, among other things, the dead will be raised, as the book of Daniel, for example, says, right? So I think they are hoping for the resurrection of the dead uh, during the ministry of Jesus. So if then, within that context of expectation, of hope for the general resurrection of the dead, not Jesus's resurrection, I mean the resurrection of the dead, if that's the context, and in that context, there's a story of his tomb being emptied, right? Okay. Now, of course, that by itself isn't going to do anything because tombs were robbed and so on. But if you have that, plus the testimony of one or two people you trust that, hey, I've seen Jesus— I think if you put one plus two plus three together, you're going to get what you have here. So that's my own take on it. Uh, you have a story of an empty tomb. You have appearances. You have people saying, I saw him, right? And then you have this uh, expectation, which gives you the interpretive category. Oh, I know what this must be. This must be the resurrection of the dead. By the way, the early Christians, in my judgment, don't think of the resurrection of Jesus as an isolated event. That is, they think that it's the first fruits. He's the first fruits, as in, as First Corinthians 15 says. And if you have the first fruits, well, the rest comes real soon. I mean, you, once the first fruits are gone, you know, the harvest follows immediately. There's no time between the two. And so Jesus is the, the first fruits. Or in um, Matthew 28, you have the story, uh, or sorry, 27, of these other people rising from the dead, which makes it more of a collective event, right? And then you have in some of these letters attributed to Paul, you get the idea that Christians have actually already risen. They've died and they've been raised with Christ. So it's very interesting. It's not just Jesus's resurrection and that's it. There's some sense that this is part of a, a larger collective thing going on, which is what you have uh, in Judaism, where the, the resurrection is, is universal. It, it's at the end and so on. So I think early Christians think that Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the resurrection of the dead, or the, the, the inauguration or start, or just, just the beginning uh, of things. But anyway, I think the category is given with the expectations that they have before uh, Easter and before Good Friday. And by the way, that makes perfect sense, because the first Christians, the first disciples, the first Christ followers— are people who knew the historical Jesus and regarded him as a teacher and were following him around and were listening to him. And I think their categories, their ideas would be derived from him. So it makes perfect sense. 
he's um, presented in the Gospels, in Mark 12, for example, as defending the belief in the resurrection of the dead, right? And I personally don't think his disciples from the very beginning would have said, hey, uh, let's use this resurrection concept if they didn't already have it to hand, right? I, I think it was given to them uh, by their tradition and reinforced by Jesus himself. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it, I, I think that's one of the most um, uh, fascinating aspects of our resurrection story within Christianity is just the reaction of the disciples after that. Uh, but you're right; it would be it would be fascinating to to know to have more of the actual first person writings from all of these disciples and say, "Oh, what was life at, like after that?" You know, it, but it did seem to, in some way, invigorate them to continue to spread the gospel, um, or at least on. Paul, you know, Paul certainly um, had a large hand in it. So, so I, I think you can make make the argument that if if the tomb hadn't been empty, or we didn't have a story of that, and if nobody had said, "I've seen Jesus alive," right? I I doubt that we would have had Christianity. Maybe we would have something. I don't know what. You, I think there's evidence, for example, that the followers of John the Baptist, or at least some of them, continued to be Baptists uh, on into the second century. I think there's enough evidence of that. And John was martyred. And I don't know, maybe somebody thought that he rose from the dead. You know, in Mark 6, you have that bizarre passage about, well, maybe maybe Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead, which is attributed uh, to Herod Antipas. Uh, I've never known quite what to make of of that weird comment, and I don't know whether it represents uh, anything other than a very idiosyncratic uh, opinion. But I do think that John was martyred and that he continued to have followers. So maybe there would have been people who, you know, remember Jesus as a great teacher, something like that. Um, But uh, you you wouldn't have had what you have, uh, which is this version of Christianity, which puts death and resurrection at the center of everything. You wouldn't have Pauline Christianity. You wouldn't have the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you just wouldn't have that. Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. You, would, you wouldn't think that unless something significant had happened, that, that these individuals would literally put their lives at risk, uh, continuing to preach this message, unless they truly you know, believed it. So, yeah, so that's the old argument from martyrdom, which some apologists use to defend the resurrection. And I think it works for Paul. I think it works for Peter. Uh, it works for James, the son of Zebedee, who, according to <clears throat> to Acts, was martyred uh, sometime in the 40s. Um, so I think, yeah, you can say that's a, that's a decent uh, argument. Uh, for their sincerity. But as soon as you say that, you have to add that you don't really know anything about most of the people on the list of the 12. You you have later legends, but I've never been convinced that there's much history in those legends. So uh, some people say, for example, that there's enough evidence for us to think that Thomas made it to India if, you, if you've ever known any Indian Christians, a number of them think they are descended from uh, Thomas, who went to India and, and converted uh, Indians long, long, long ago. Uh, that's possible, but uh, 
Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Matthew. I, I don't know anything about these characters, and I don't think anyone else does. Um, there, there are stories about their martyrdoms, right? There are stories about their martyrdoms, but that doesn't surprise me. Um, I don't know why it's not obvious to everybody, but in, at the beginning of Acts 1, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses you know, to, to the 12, right? And the Greek word for witness is martyr there, and it means witnesses. The word martyr means witness, right? But I am sure early Christians read this to mean Jesus was predicting that they would all be martyred. So, of course, we have stories about all of them being martyred. Of course we do. Jesus prophesied it, and that's going to guarantee it. But I don't, I don't see any reason to believe these these stories. When I was working on the Gospel of Matthew many years ago, I I looked at all the different legends about Matthew, and they had nothing in common. It, it was just obvious people were guessing and making things up, and uh, there wasn't anything there. So it gets back to the thinness of the sources, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see Matthew's diary. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yes. And by the way, it's all, it's also weird to think, isn't it, that if we had Bartholomew's diary and Thaddeus's diary and Matthew's diary that there would be no surprises? That oh, we'd, we'd still I, be I, talking. <laughs> no, no way. Yeah. No way. There would be surprises. What what they would be, I don't know, but they would be there. Absolutely. We we'd still be having conversations like this. I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, that's that's correct. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, so what is your, cause I realize we're, we're, we're coming up on our time here. Um, uh, what is your personal, after all the research, you spent all this time on it, you're, you, you come at it from a historian's perspective. Um, you've looked at what evidence we do have. Did any of the other texts that aren't included in the Bible, uh, like did the, any of those come into play? Cause I, I know a lot of scholars feel like, eh, we can't really take them too seriously because most of them are written way, way after the fact. Um, uh-huh. but what, yeah, what what is your what was your personal conclusion when you got to the end of it? What well, you mean about other sources, extra canonical sources? Sure, uh, yeah. They 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 don't play any role in my historical decisions. So the Gospel of Peter at one time I argued might be independent of Matthew, and I thought it might contain some early traditions. I think it's still possible that at one or two points it does, but for the most part, I think it's a legendary secondary work. And if you go mining for for history there, you might find one little tiny piece of gold. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe. It looks to me, we don't know because the text is fragmentary, it looks to me that the Gospel of Peter might have have presented an appearance at the Sea of Galilee as the first appearance to the disciples, which is what some people have conjectured for John 21, which looks, or, yeah, John 21, which looks to many of us like a, a secondary or late edition uh, of the text. But the idea is that Jesus appears to Peter and the disciples, and they've gone back to fishing. And it is kind of weird. It's like, what are they doing? Uh, 
the appearance on the Sea of Galilee in John 21 has impressed some as being maybe a remnant of the first appearance in, in Galilee. Uh, very different than Matthew's story in Matthew 28. Uh, but um, maybe, maybe it was, in which case the Gospel of Peter might have had that sequence. It might have had the disciples going back to Galilee, not having seen Jesus, and the first appearance being something by the Sea of Galilee. But other than that, no, uh, there's a... There's a story about the appearance of James. I, I think it's late secondary. I don't see any history in it, so I don't. I don't see anything to help us here. Um, it would be nice if, if there were, but but there just isn't. So maybe, we're, stuck maybe, with, maybe, yeah. we're stuck with the New Testament sources, which mm. are in fact um, the earliest sources for belief about the resurrection. So based on the sources that we do have, um, you know, after you did all of your research and looked into them and, and kind of try to weigh the pros and cons to, to either side of the aisle, uh, what was your personal conclusion at the end of all of this? Well, I, I say that my personal conclusions within my academic context are actually antediluvian. Uh, <laughs> by that, I mean really conservative. So I decided that Jesus was buried and buried by somebody named Joseph of Arimathea. I'm not sure of his motive. Um, I'm not sure what's going on, but I think there's a memory there. I also think the tomb was found empty by uh, Mary Magdalene and probably uh, some other women also. I think that there was probably an early appearance to Mary Magdalene. And those are very conservative opinions within the guild, Right, they put me on the side of the the apologists, and I think that the early Christians uh, believed that Jesus had appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and I would guess that um, the twelve believed this also. It's an interesting question. How do you explain a, a collective vision or a collective encounter? Again, that's one of the points that the apologists like to uh, bring up time after time, um, and the 500, you know, if 500 people at the same time thought they saw Jesus, isn't that, isn't that evidential? So I think there were at least two group appearances, and then there were some uh, appearances to individuals. Uh, I'm sure there were more appearances than we have reference to, but uh, you only record the uh, appearances of important people, uh, you know, people who have some power and sway and influence and who are known to a wider audience. If Jesus had appeared to some uh, unknown widow, right, in some small village, we just wouldn't know about that, right? I, I'd be happy to learn that, but uh, yeah. you know, it's, not, it's not in the sources. So my conclusions were conservative, but they didn't lead me to say, oh, the apologists are right, and you have to be uh, very stupid not to look at the evidence and say, okay, Jesus rose from, from the dead. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I like that. We, we try to talk a lot about on this podcast about the idea of um, becoming more uh, at peace 
uh, with with ambiguity and uncertainty. I think you know too often uh, this this desire for certainty kind of leads us down the wrong path uh, too often. And you know when we're talking about the divine, you know God, this this mysterious other, um, you know, oftentimes we have to just kind of throw up our hands and say, well, this is our best guess, but we really don't know. Um, and so I think part of, part of our journey together as, as, uh, both me as the, uh, the host and the listeners out there is kind of becoming more comfortable, uh, with, with uncertainty. So I kind of like the idea that your conclusion could go both ways, you know, and, and, and some of the story could be absolutely true and some of it could be some embellishment later, but, um, it, it can be both. Well, obviously, I'm fine with that. I don't. I don't know the psychology involved here. I do know lots of people who want certainty or are anxious about it. Um, I, I just am not like that. I have no idea why. You know, maybe it has something to do with my mother. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you. I, it's just never bothered me. And I've also always thought that the world is big. And we, we can't fathom even the physical universe if there is an invisible spiritual universe or if there are other dimensions or other realities that sometimes intersect with ours. We have no hope of, of figuring things out. And actually, I can add one of the things I did in the book is I said, you know, at this point in time, I, I've read enough uh, books written by physicists to know that I have no, ma- no idea anymore what matter is. <laughs> I really don't. I have no matter. Right. I don't know what matter is. I don't know what energy is. Um, I think there must be something analogous to a soul, but I don't know ontologically or metaphysically what the heck it is. I don't know how it relates to our brain. Um, and so, I, you know, I just don't get much of anything. So, uh, given that, you have to be humble. Uh, you also have to be humble when you realize that there are really intelligent, good-hearted people who disagree with you about almost everything, right? Yeah. Uh, The idea that I have everything, if I have everything figured out, what it means is everybody else is wrong. And the odds of that are zero. Yeah. The odds of that are zero. Absolutely. So, so, you know, to use Christian language here, uh, at the end of the day, um, you have to throw yourself back on the language of mystery and also uh, use the language of grace, right? If anybody understands that we can't figure things out, it must be God, right? God, you know, God must understand that we can't figure everything out. Or, or God must understand that we often make honest mistakes. People make yeah. honest mistakes. So uh, you just do your best, and you uh, you have hope and faith. I love it. That's a great place to end, I think. So uh, thank you so much. This is a fascinating conversation. I, I really think the listeners are going to love it. Um, and uh, happy Easter to everyone listening. And uh, thanks again for giving me some of your time. I know you're busy right now. Thanks for having me, John.
His face must look like yours. Did God kill his kid? Did he have to have? Love. 